Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A couple of announcements we need to make sure we've got under control. Most of these are up here on the screen. Uh, We've got family night Saturday, February the 24th. There will be a special presentation on Camp Penile, and that will start at 5 o'clock and won't go beyond 8 o'clock. Then, let me see what, I know we have other, there we go. We still need volunteers, right, to host people for the pastor's conference. A number of you have volunteered, that's tremendous. Uh, ladies' prayer brunch this Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m., bring a sack lunch and cookies, Right? <laughs> No, okay, just a sack lunch. All right, and then our congregational meeting will be on Sunday, February 25th, uh, following the morning worship, so we encourage everyone to attend. All right, well, before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have some, a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and focused and ready to study God's Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved this down through the centuries that we can have our very own copy of that which you have revealed to the entire human race and have it in our own hands and that we can study it and that we have all the tremendous uh, tools available Uh, to this generation to enable us to understand the truth of your word. Now, as we study these things, we pray that we might not take your word lightly, but that we might be able to uh, respond positively to the instruction that's here and that God the Holy Spirit would use it to build our biblical framework of understanding reality and challenge us in terms of our application that our life and character would be transformed into that of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, moving on to the next uh, paragraph, which is really an explanation of what concludes the previous paragraph. That's in verses 11 and 12, so we need to pick up the context. The end of the last section focused on the encouragement from the writer to these Stumbling, slow, uh, questioning uh, believers that are on the have been on the verge of giving up their Christianity, going back into Judaism, and here he concludes and says that we desire that each one of you show the same diligence with, to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And here the idea of patience is 
not the word for endurance, but the word for uh, for patience is used in James 5 a couple of times, used almost synonymously with endurance, but it has a slightly different meaning. But <clears throat> we've studied this, and we were finishing up talking about inheriting the promises, and we covered this last time because this is the foundation for understanding the explanation that comes up in the next paragraph. Now, the next paragraph runs from verse 13 down through verse 20. And the function of this paragraph, aside from the fact that it has significant doctrinal uh, references in it, is to orient the reader's thinking to this concept of promise, which is used in verse 12 and then is repeated again in verse 13, verse 15, and verse 17. So we have an emphasis on promise, which is not yet fulfilled, focusing attention again on on the future. The function of the, this section from 13 to 20 is to transition back from this reprimand that the writer has given his readers because they have, according to verse uh, chapter 5, verse 11, because they've become dull of hearing, that now he, and he broke off his, uh, <clears throat> his discussion of Melchizedek. He was building to a discussion of the importance of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. There's a priesthood after the order of the royal Gentile priesthood of Melchizedek. And he broke off suddenly in verse uh, 11 and says, well, we have a lot to say about that. It's hard to explain, but even more so because you've become dull of hearing. And then there is this um, exhortation and warning from five. Uh, 5.11 down through uh, 6.20. The warning section is from 6.4 through 8. And so in this exhortation section, in the final paragraph, he transitions back to the subject of Melchizedek, which we see in verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So when he picks up in chapter 7, he picks up where he left off in uh, chapter 5, verse 10. So we get into this concept of, <clears throat> of inheritance, which is the verb form used here in this passage, where it's an articular participle, those who are inheriting the promises, in indicating those Old Testament saints that inherit the promises. And, of course, the premier example is going to come from Abraham. So we have three forms of this word that appear in Hebrews. And the first is the verb form, kleronimeo, which is used 18 times in the New Testament, four times in Hebrews. In total, there are nine uses of the cognate of this word, either the verb or uh, one of the noun forms, showing that inheritance is a major theme in the book of, of, of uh, Hebrews. So this is used 18 times and four times in Hebrews. Second, we have the noun for inheritance or property, that which is inherited, which is used 14 times in the New Testament and twice in Hebrews, in Hebrews 9.15 and again in Hebrews 11.8, which is in reference again to Abraham. And then we have the third use, the third form of the word, which is the noun indicating the heir or the designated recipient, Pleronimos, which is used 15 times in the New Testament, 
three times in Hebrews. So we see from just the, the emphasis in this epistle that the concept of inheritance is very important and fundamental to understand. So we just covered point one, which are the forms of the word, and then point two was that inherit has the core semantic meaning of possession, property, or ownership. This is particularly important when we come to those difficult passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Hebrew, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, around verses 19 to 20, 21, where you have this list of sins, and it concludes by saying those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom. And at first blush, too many people go to those passages and think that inheriting the kingdom is, the, is synonymous with entering the kingdom or gaining eternal life or being, being saved. But it's a different concept. It relates to rewards. And we've gone through uh, detailed studies of that in the past. The core idea to remember is inheritance means possession, property, or ownership. We have this... Um, mentioned in Hebrews 11.8 and Hebrews 1.2, and there we learn that it doesn't have the idea of uh, that, that somebody has to die before you get the inheritance. That's typical in our culture and many other cultures. So in, to inherit, you, somebody has to die, but that's not the concept in, in the New Testament. It is, it Maybe there's a secondary idea depending on the context, but the primary idea is just possession. Abraham in Hebrews 11.8 receives the land as an inheritance. Nobody died and left it to him. In Hebrews 1-2, Christ is appointed heir of all things. Nobody dies and leaves it to Christ. It's emphasizing ownership and possession. Then our third point of summary on inheritance is that inheritance in relation to Abraham can be related to either the land promise or the seed promise in the New Testament but it's always related to the idea of the divine promise. Inheritance in relation to Abraham is based on grace. It was God's freely given covenant to Abraham that is the foundation of his ownership of the land. Galatians 3.18 connects it that it's not inheritance isn't based on the law, it's based on the promise of God. Also, Romans 4, 13, and 14. And then our fourth point was that inheritance is also related to rewards for what is earned for service, whereas salvation is a free gift. Colossians 3, 24, because we know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So this just gives us a summary of the uh, the concept of inheritance. This it undergirds the passage. Uh, Hebrews <clears throat> six twelve says again that it was through faith and patience that they inherited, that they became possessors of the promise. Now, the particular promise he has in mind isn't the land promise; it is the seed promise. And in verse <clears throat> thirteen. We have the explanation. Do I not have verse 13 up on slide? No, for some reason, that slide got deleted. Okay, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, 
4 is the Greek word gar, which always introduces an explanation. It gives a reason for something. So we've just had a principle laid down in terms of an encouragement that to the church-age believers and uh, in Israel, these Jewish believers, they're encouraged to follow the example of these Old Testament saints. Now, where's that going to happen again? See, this is how the writer of Hebrews introduces a concept. He builds on it a little later on and builds on it even more. We've had Abraham mentioned once. He's mentioned a little more here. And then we're going to have a whole chapter in chapter 11 where the writer of Hebrews is going to go through all of these Old Testament saints and how they serve as, according to Hebrews 12.1, a great cloud of witnesses for us. And so they serve as examples in terms of their orientation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And their orientation, of course, was future. But the exhortation in Hebrews 12.2 is to keep our focus on the author and completer of our faith, the pioneer of our faith who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where we first begin to see that idea introduced that we can go back to Old Testament examples to form a pattern for our lives, not in the sense of following the law, but in the sense that they were using the same basic principles for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that we are. And so we see this connection that even though there are differences between the age of Israel in the Old Testament and the church age in the New Testament, differences between the basic administrative uh, um, mandate in the Old Testament, which was the law, and the New Covenant, which supplants the Old Covenant, which is what we'll get into as we get into uh, chapter uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10. We start getting into this, the, the differences between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. But there's still something that is the same in both dispensations. And so that gives us that pattern where we can go back and look at these Old Testament examples. It's so important, and I try to emphasize this again and again, that the Old Testament takes the abstract doctrines that we have in the Old, in, in the New Testament, and it puts them into shoe leather, puts them into flesh and blood examples of people's lives. And that's really important, especially for those of you who are teaching your kids or grandkids or you're teaching in prep school is to think in terms of these Old Testament images for teaching New Testament doctrines. For example, we've just seen how I've done that with confession on Tuesday night. And we go back and the premier example for confession in the Old Testament is what happened on the Day of Atonement when you have the two goats, the one goat for the sin offering, the one goat for the scapegoat offering. And then also on the Day of Atonement, you have the high priest bringing blood into the Holy of Holies and putting it on the mercy seat as a picture of propitiation. So it's these pictures that we have that serve as visual aids that help us capture the significance of these important doctrines in the New Testament. And we're going to see another one of those uh, tonight in the background for uh, verse 14. So verse 13 is going to explain how, by giving one example of how one Old Testament believer had patience, had faith and patience to inherit the promise. That's 
what the next section is all about. So we come to verse 13, and we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now let me look for a slide here, because I was convinced, well, I had a, somehow I must have accidentally deleted it. I had a good slide with a chart on this. But when God made a promise to Abraham, what we have here is the beginning of this verb, when God made a promise, actually translates an aorist middle participle in the Greek, epangelo. And epangelo means to make a promise, to give a promise, or to make a declaration. It's the, as an aorist participle, it precedes the action of the main verb. Uh, And the main verb is given down in, at the last phrase, he swore by himself. Now, when you have a participle like this at the beginning, you have to determine what its relationship is to the main verb. And so as, a, as an adverbial participle, it should be translated with the idea of, of when. So when God made a promise to Abraham, he swore by himself. Now, when did this happen? This happens in Genesis chapter 22, and that's what the quote's going to come from, from verse 14. And the other thing to note that we get out of the original and you don't pick up in the English is that the name for God has a def- has an article with it in the Greek. And the article in Greek functions very differently from the article in English, and it doesn't mean that it should be translated the God, but it is a use of the article which is defined as the par excellence use of the article, where the article is used to point to the noun that it's associated with to indicate that that noun is in a class by itself. So you don't translate it the God, but it emphasizes that that noun is a distinct entity uh, different from anything else. It's in a class uh, by itself. So the emphasis is going to be on this uniqueness of God, and we see that brought out even by the grammar, because look at how the verse reads. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, I mean, there's nothing greater than God. So God couldn't say, well, here's how I'm going to swear this oath so that you will know that I'm going to do it, because there was nothing superior to God that he could use as a as a pattern or as an ultimate criteria. So he swore by himself. So the main phrase here, that God swore by himself, indicates that uniqueness of God, that he is completely distinct from his creation. He is the creator. Everything else is the creation. And even the grammar, by using this uh, definite article with the noun, reinforces that uniqueness and distinctiveness of God. So the focus is on the fact that God... uh, and he doesn't need to swear by himself. God's word is enough, but in order to reinforce the certainty of the promise, he swears this oath on the basis of his own character. And the oath that he expresses is actually a little bit larger than the, uh, <clears throat> than the quote in verse 14, but we see that in verse, verse 14. 
Verse 14, uh, I have Genesis 22:17 at the top and Hebrews 6:14 at the bottom. Blessing I will bless you is in the original, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. And in the Hebrews just quotes it and quotes it directly out of the out of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the uh, of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so it's quoted Shirley, which is a better translation. And uh, I, I would I would challenge both translations. The blessing I will bless you is clearly is is, is a literal translation of the Greek. But in the Hebrew, you don't have this, what we would call a participle or gerund, blessing and multiplying. What you have in the original is the same kind of construction that you have back in Genesis uh, chapter 2.17, which was wrongly translated, dying, you will die. It's a, what you have is an infinitive absolute in the Hebrew that duplicates the main verb. And the main verb is in, as usually a perfect or uh, uh, is usually an imperfect uh, tense of the verb. And this is a Hebrew idiom that expresses the certainty of the action. It's not blessing, I will bless you. Well, how is that first blessing as a gerund or as a participle? It's like a long-term action, you know, like running or uh, shopping or eating, or this is something that takes place over a long period of time. How do you say eating, I will eat? What does that really mean if you, t- if you parse it out? It doesn't mean anything. Uh, by adding that, by putting the participle there in front of a finite verb in the English doesn't say that there are two different kinds of blessing that happen there or two different kinds of multiplying. In the Hebrew idiom, it is simply a way of expressing the absolute certainty of the idea. In the past, I've gone through every use. There's about 25 of these in uh, the book of Genesis, and they just don't make sense in this kind of a construction in English. This should have been translated as the uh, English tried to do it by introducing the word surely, should have been simply with certainty or surely I will bless you and I will multiply your descendants. That's the force. It is God, it is the strongest possible way God can put this to say that you can, you have absolute, unconditional certainty that this is going to happen. I will bless you and I will multiply your descendants. And in Genesis 2, it expands that by saying, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, sand on the seashore, and your descendants will possess the gate of their enemies, which is an idiom indicating Excuse me, an, an idiom indicating conquest because the gate of these cities was where all the, that, that'd be like city hall. That's where all the transactions took place. That's where judicial decisions were made. That's often where uh, any sort of uh, land transaction was recorded. So to possess the gate of their enemies means to conquer the cities of their enemies and take over uh, complete control. Now, this goes back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 2c through 3, where the Lord said to Abraham, you shall be a blessing, that was a command, and as a result, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, 
and in you all the families of the earth, that is the Gentile nations, shall be blessed. So at the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant, you knew this was coming, where we have land, seed, and blessing, the three elements of that promise. God promised Abraham a specific piece of real estate, that he would have a seed and descendants, and that through them he would bless all the nations. So we have the uh, Abrahamic covenant and the blessing component that's laid out in Genesis 12 is then restated several times, Genesis 15, Genesis 18, uh, 18 uh, and then finally it is reconfirmed and the, the final statement of it for Abraham is given in chapter 22, which is where this quote comes from. The quote uh, in, Genesis, I mean, in Hebrews 6.14 isn't coming out of uh, Genesis 12, it's coming out of Genesis 22. And if you remember, when we went through Excuse, sorry. When we went through Genesis, I talked about the fact that, that the New Testament goes to Abraham for various different uh, ideas and various different doctrines. It goes to Abraham as an illustration of justification by faith for uh, at the beginning of the believer's uh, new life. It goes to Abraham for... Uh, illustration of spiritual growth. This is what we see in Hebrews chapter 12. goes to Abraham as an example of the mature Christian who has passed those various tests leading up to spiritual maturity and vindicates his faith by that mature maturity test that he passes. And this is how Abraham is referred to in James chapter 2. Abraham is also the father of missions and several other things that we covered there. And what we have here is the focus on Abraham in terms of his spiritual growth and spiritual maturity because the quote comes right out of Genesis 22, which is the 13th and last test that Abraham went through in his spiritual growth process. There are no more tests for Abraham recorded in Genesis after uh, Genesis Chapter 22. And we come to Genesis 6.15. We read that so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And a couple of things that we ought to note here in terms of the Greek structure, that word and so translates a little Greek word called hutos, H-O-U-T-O-S. I don't think I put that up there. H-O-U-T-O-S. This is the same word that begins John 3.16. Most of you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, that really doesn't communicate what the Greek says. The Greeks, when you have this word at the beginning of a sentence, it often means that in this manner or in this way, in the way that I'm about to tell you, in the manner I am about to tell you, something happened. So John 3.16 should be understood as, For in this manner God loved the world. In what manner? He gave his Son. That's how God loved the world. So it should be translated for thusly, or in this manner. It's an adverb, an adverb in the Greek indicating what follows in the text. So here we have the same thing. And so in this manner I'm about to tell you, I'm going to give you an illustration of how 
<coughs> Abraham had faith and patience, verse 12, and patiently endured and obtained the promise. Second thing we note is we have the same kind of uh, construction that we have in uh, the, in verse 13. We have an aorist participle preceding uh, an aorist verb, which indicates that the action of the participle to endure, which is the word makrothumeo again, meaning that should be translated just patience, that that precedes the action of the main verb, which is to obtain the promise. So it should be translated, after having been patient, he received something or he obtained it. That word for obtain doesn't mean purchase. We just got through talking about kleronometo and those cognates meaning possession. So it would you would think that if you read in the English obtain, that it has to do with something like purchasing the possession. But don't get that idea at all. Obtain is just a bad word to use in the English because it, it for us it's it has this purchase concept. But the Greek word is epi, epituncano, which means to be successful in achieving or gaining your goals or your ends. And so here it has the idea of finally reaching that goal of realizing the promise. Now, the promise that's mentioned here is the promise related to the seed. Remember, Let's think a minute about Abraham. Let's just go back and kind of review it a little bit in our minds, that God comes along and he gives a promise to Abraham related to the fact that you're going to have children. You're going to have a seed. You're going to have a promised son. And Abraham's getting pretty old, and years go by, and... Uh, 15 years go by and there's no seed. And so Sarah comes along and says, I got an idea. We can make this happen. I can't have children, but why don't you, uh, try Hagar? We're gonna, we're gonna use the, a little substitute here and try to work this out on our own energy and our own effort. And so, uh, Abraham has a child with Hagar, which is Ishmael. And then, uh, that's not the child of the promise. Earlier, I skipped one. We have Eliezer. The first thing he tried to do was use his servant as the, as, as the seed. God said no, reiterated the promise to him, established the covenant with him, and then we have the attempt with, uh, Hagar. Uh, then God says, no, it's not Ishmael. Ishmael's not the seed. You will have a son from you and Sarah. And so then finally, after 10 years, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, Sarah got pregnant and has Isaac. And so then Isaac is growing up, and this is finally the seed that God has promised. And there have been all these various tests that came along in the meantime. And you get to chapter 22, and God says, okay, now you're going to take the son that I promised you, and you're going to go sacrifice him. That's his final test, and that test is what he passes in chapter 22, and this is when God reaffirms for the last time the covenant promise with Abraham, which is the quote that we have in verse 14. So that tells us uh, where we're headed. Now, a couple of other things that we ought to note here to pick up the significance of chapter, I mean, of verse 15. So after he had patiently endured, meaning that the patience the endurance is first, and then you realize a promise. See, after this test in Genesis 22, there is no longer a test 
for Abraham related to the, the seed. He now can rest in confidence. He knows Isaac's going to live. He can relax. Next thing he's concerned about is making sure that, that Isaac has a wife. Now, when we look at this word macrothemeo, there's two ways we can understand this. The first time I read this, and after I read it for a couple of times, I was wrestling with this because I, I, I thought, well, after he patiently endured. Well, I'm thinking in terms of the totality of Abraham's life. Was he patient when he tried to make Eliezer his heir? Was he being patient when he tried to make uh, uh, Hagar the mother of the, of the promised seed? I said, that, that doesn't fit the idea of patience. Well, turns out that Macrothemeo can have one of two ideas. One is to wait patiently over the period from the beginning of the promise. And that, that doesn't apply. But the other idea is to patiently endure during that particular test. And that's what we see exemplified with Abraham in that final Genesis 22 test. He has a relaxed mental attitude. Up to that point, we don't see Abraham really relaxing in the grace, provision, and promise of God. He always seems to be trying to, okay, God, you promised me a son. Let's, let me figure out how I can make that happen. But finally, when he gets there, God says, go sacrifice him. And Abraham doesn't say anything, but okay, yes, sir. And he is very relaxed and puts everything together and heads to Mount Moriah in order to sacrifice Isaac. So let's turn in our Bibles and go back and review what happens in Genesis chapter 22. This has always been just one of my favorite favorite episodes in the Old Testament because it's such a perfect picture of the whole concept of substitutionary uh, salvation, substitutionary atonement. Genesis 22.1, it came to pass after these things, so some time has passed between the birth of Isaac and this time. Now he's a young man, he's anywhere from 15 to 30 years of age, I think. Came to pass after these things, God tested Abraham, and, and this it makes a point out of the fact that this is a test. Now, almost any decision you make in life is a test in one sense. Because you have to decide whether or not you're going to apply doctrine or you're going to do it out of your own energy and your own ability. So in that sense, almost any decision we make as we plan our day, as we conduct our business, as we respond to whatever uh, things happen during the day or whatever people do, that's a test. It's an opportunity whether we're going to apply the word or not apply the word. But there are specific tests that God brings into our life that are designed to move us to the next stage of spiritual growth. And we've identified 13 of those in the life of Abraham. So God brings this final test to Abraham, and he calls to, decides to Abraham to test Abraham, and he calls to him. Now, the word here for test is the word, the Hebrew word nasa, that's not nasa, with what's been on the news lately, I know that's immediately where your mind went. Uh, <clears throat> it's nasa, meaning to test, try, or prove. It's, it's similar to the New Testament word dokimazo, which means to, uh, appro- to prove the value of something. It's, it's not there to show where you're, where you're going to fail, 
but how you're going to succeed. The quality of your spiritual growth is evaluated. So God tests Abraham. <clears throat> Abraham responds, says, Lord, I'm here, I'm ready. He is authority-oriented and he is responsive to the test. Verse 2, God says, take now your son. In the Hebrew, it's, it's unusual. God just doesn't give him a mandate. He starts off, and the best way to translate is, uh, Abraham, would you please take your son? It is a very polite expression. And I think that indicates that God recognizes how serious this is, that this is not uh, a trivial request, and this is going to be a tough situation for a father to take his son and to offer him as a human sacrifice. So he says, now, Abraham, would you please take your son? And he repeats it with emphasis, your only son, Isaac. Your only Isaac. Why? Because he's emphasized the fact that this is the seed. This is the one I promised that we went through 25 years of spiritual growth development before you were finally ready for me to give you what I had promised you 25 years earlier. And now what I'm going to ask you to do is take him, the product of these, <clears throat> all these years of development, and you take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And the command there to go to the land of Moriah is the same form of the verb, lech lecha, that you have in 12.1 where God commanded Abraham to go and to leave his parents. It indicates that he's to go alone. This is a test for him, and just as he was tested initially to trust God and leave the land of his fathers and to go to the land that God would show him, now he's being tested in relationship to the seed, and this is the final test. So there's a certain parallelism there. He's asked to offer <clears throat> Isaac as a burnt offering, an olah from the Hebrew word Allah, meaning to go up, to climb, to ascend, and it is the idea that when you offer a burnt offering, the smoke from the offering ascends up to God. So Ola always refers to a burnt offering where you, you kill the sacrifice and then you have the wood piled around the altar and you burn it and everything burns up and goes to God. So God isn't saying just go up there and slit its throat as a sacrifice. God is saying go slit its throat, kill him, and burn him and completely destroy everything. Now, the, New, the Old Testament really doesn't tell you what's going on with Abraham's attitude other than it just shows this immediate compliance of Abraham where he gets Isaac and they uh, get, their, get a servant to go with him part of the way. But Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 gives us Abraham's thought processes. By faith, Abraham does this. Now, remember what verse 11 said in, in, in Hebrews 6, that by faith and endurance, he inherited the pro promise. Now, the focus in 13 and 14 is on the patience, by faith and patience. Here we have, in chapter 11, 17, we have the faith aspect. By faith, that is, by means of the doctrine that Abraham had learned, he finally has come to realize by Genesis 22, that God is a God of his word. 
that God has faithfully fulfilled every promise he's made to Abraham, and God is completely trustworthy. He can trust God with everything. God promised him a seed, so he's sitting there and he's thinking, okay, if God promised him, then in order for God to fulfill the promise, that even if I kill him, God's going to bring him back to life, and that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says, that he, by faith, He offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So what Hebrews 11 is showing us is that Abraham is just so relaxed because he's figured it out. God said that his seed is going to come through Isaac, and there's nothing that's going to prevent that, even if he slits Isaac's throat and has to burn the body to fulfill the command to offer up an Olah to God, God is going to bring him back from the dead because that's the only way God can fulfill his promise and God always keeps his word. So he has tremendous confidence and with that confidence in God, he just has a very relaxed mental attitude about the whole thing. He can just move through the whole situation and with a tremendous degree of calm. So he rises up early the next morning, saddles his donkey, took two of his young men, his servants with him, and Isaac, his son. He split wood for thee, and again we have burnt offering. Six times this word is restated in the text to make sure we understand that it is a burnt offering. Every time I see this word, I'm always reminded about the story over in, in Judges, uh, chapter uh what is that about Judges chapter 8 and 9, or Judges chapter 8, that deals with um, Jephthah. I forget the chapter right now. But Jephthah made the vow that he's going to offer his daughters a burnt offering. And every mamby-pamby evangelical comes along and says, you know, he's a great, he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. He's a great hero of the faith. He's not going to offer his daughters a sacrifice. He did something else. But this word never indicates it means anything else, and, and the, they miss the purpose of, the, of many of those judges' stories is to show that on the one hand, these guys trust God at key moments, but then at other times, because they're, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, they completely blow it. Sounds familiar? So, burnt offering means burnt offering. So he arose and goes to the place where God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now, this just shows how God ties everything together, because Mount Moriah is later identified in in Chronicles as the place where Solomon builds the temple. The temple is built, the threshing floor of Uruna is right on the same spot. So you see this pattern that the, the Holy of Holies is set on the, the rock that's at the, on the dome, uh, at the center of the Dome of the Rock now, is where the Holy of Holies was in Solomon's Temple, and that's the site where Abraham offered Isaac. Now the Muslims want to say it's where he offered Ishmael, but they never do get anything right. So Abraham lifts his eyes, see the place afar off, and says to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now, on Sunday mornings, we're going to be studying this whole concept of worship. So this is one reason I wanted to go back through this, is it 
connects several of our studies together. The word for worship here is the hishtafel, imperfect, of sacha. And in the hishtafel, it means to prostrate oneself, to bow down. It is the position of the lowest slave to the highest, to his highest superior. It, the, the concept comes out, or is, is expressed in, uh, in the, the, in, in Persian customs where an equal would, uh, <clears throat> kiss the cheek of an individual. Someone who was just, uh, maybe a notch or two below would kiss the higher official's hand. And then the lowest slave, the one down at the bottom of the food chain, uh, almost grovels inside of a superior gets, and that is the core word that's used for worship in both Old Testament and New Testament. See, there's something in the mentality of an American because of our uh, emphasis on the value of the individual and the equality of all people and democracy, and we don't, we haven't grown up in a monarchy where you have all of this protocol where people virtually grovel before the monarch, that we lose this concept in our understanding of worship. And yet this is the core biblical idea. We are just a lowly creature before the great creator God of heaven. And so there we, the, the core idea of worship is submitting everything in our thinking to the authority of God. That's the ultimate idea in worship. And that's what he is saying. We're going to worship. We're going to do exactly what God says to do and completely submit everything that we do to the authority of God, even if that demands uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. So we will worship. And notice what Abraham says then. And we will return to you. It's a third person. I mean, it's a first person plural of both verbs. We will return to you. So he has great confidence that we're going to go up there and I'm going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering and God's going to bring him back from the dead and I'm coming back and, and we're coming back. So he has, has tremendous confidence and relaxation in this test. But Isaac <clears throat> kind of catches on to this and he speaks to Abraham in verse 7 and says, Father, Abraham says the same thing he said to God, Hineni, behold, here I am. And Isaac said, look, here we have fire and wood, but where's the lamb? Wait a minute. We got everything prepared for this burnt offering, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responds and says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. This guy is just as calm and as relaxed as he can be. He's figured it out. As I pointed out in the last couple of lessons, what makes the difference between these great heroes of the faith and many of us? It's that they finally figure out that it's all about God and it's not about us and it's just not an issue anymore. And Abraham figures that out, and so he knows that God's going to be faithful to his word no matter what he asks him to do. So he's just going to do what God wants him to do and let God take care of the situation. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac. Now, I've often wondered what, what happens here. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit just sort of glosses over this. And when Abraham says, okay, son, 
you're the sacrifice, and we have to put you on the altar. So just to make sure you don't panic at the last minute, uh, come over here and turn around. Let me tie your hands behind your back and put you on the altar on the wood. Now, this has to also say something about Isaac's authority orientation to his father and to God and his own spiritual maturity at this point that he is going to do this. And I wonder if Abraham had to say, okay, we're going to have a little teaching moment here. Remember, you're the child of promise. God said that it's all going to come through you. God makes has, has always fulfilled his word so that no matter what happens, we know that we're both going to walk out of here because God's going to be true to his word. Great teaching moment. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the word there for slay indicates the kind of uh, violent action necessary in a <clears throat> in a sacrifice typical word that is used in sacrificial uh, sacrificial narrative in verse 12 and he said god says at right at the last minute god stops him and says don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now i know that you fear God. See, Abraham believed God. It's not the belief of God that was accounted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 7, when he first believed. This is that James 2, uh, 24 passage where now he is, he is believing God as a vindication of the whole spiritual growth process, revealing his uh, spiritual maturity. God says, I know that you Fear God, of course, we have to remember that fear of God isn't merely respect. It's too often that we, in in the last hundred years, writers have tried to, especially American theologians, see, this just shows how much our culture influences how we think about these things. We don't want to think about fearing God, but if you were ever taken, dragged to the principal's office when you were in about the fourth or fifth grade, you understand what fearing God is about to some degree because you know that there is accountability. And that's what the concept of fearing God is. It is a respect for who he is as the creator, but there is this sense of dread because we're accountable to him. And it's the fear of God, that that sense of awe and accountability that's the beginning of wisdom the writer of Proverbs says several times. So, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifts his eyes up, and there's a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. This is the picture in the Old Testament for substitutionary atonement, is that the ram is offered as the burnt offering instead of Isaac. That's its... I remember when I was a uh, <clears throat> a kid, young kid at Camp Penile, and every night we'd have campfire and they'd tell Bible stories. And I always remember, this was one of Gordon Whitelock's favorite stories to tell, and you know he would just make it very dramatic, but it always, it just burned itself into my memory year after year hearing this story that Jesus Christ is the ram that, is sacrificed in our place. It's such a perfect picture of salvation. But then Abraham calls the place God will provide, Yahweh Jireh, 
as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. Now this is where we get the quote that's used in Hebrews 6. And said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. This is what Hebrews 6.13 refers. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. That's the third time we have that phrase. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. See, the promise that's referred to here is not the land promise, but the promise related to blessing and seed that the blessing would come through his seed. And he says, I will, literally he says, I will certainly bless you and certainly multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So by faith, trusting God, and by patience, by the way he he had such a relaxed mental attitude from the time God uh, called him to take his only son to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah until the very end of the process. He never panicked. He never got impatient. He never lost his relaxed mental attitude. He had a constant focus on God's character and God's promise and his faithfulness to his promise. And as a result, he what? He obtained, he realized... The promise, God reiterates it for the last time, and it is securely Abraham's. And this brings him to that final stage of spiritual maturity. Now let's go back to our passage in Hebrews 6. Six thirteen. When God made a promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself, saying, I will certainly bless you and certainly multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured during the course of the test, he obtained the promise. Verse 15. Now we're going to have another explanation that develops in verse 16. For we have, a, we have a principle introduced at the beginning of verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater. So now the focus is going to be on what God does in his action of swearing by himself. So this shifts the focus from the concept of inheriting the promise to the God who is behind the promise. And we'll see that emphasis on God in the next uh, five verses from 16 down to 20, and then that will set us up for understanding the high priesthood of Christ. So we'll come back to verse 16 uh, next week. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by this Old Testament example as Abraham set a standard and a pattern for obtaining the promise by faith and patience. May we take this to heart and be reminded that each day we have an opportunity to trust your word, to believe it, and to patiently go through life with a relaxed mental attitude because we understand that you are in control and you are going to bring about that which you have planned. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Here, did you bring that map? There's our next. Yeah, they said this is the re- the region. Isn't that interesting? The other maps I've seen, it you know, they show the journey of Abraham. And he starts down here. Right, right. This.